Well, I'm, I'm super excited to chat with composer Mark Isham, who I, uh, before we started recording, I was commenting the last time we spoke was back in 2013, if I'm correct, when uh, you were working on 42, the story about Jackie Robinson. And to me, your music is so unique because of your background, your choice of instrumentation, and kind of your expertise of kind of sliding in and out of classical jazz to electronic. And one of the recent shows that you were nominated on was Little Fires Everywhere. So congratulations on this Emmy nomination. You're, you're six, is that correct? Uh, that could be. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> what is it like waking up and, and hearing about the nomination? Is, is it still exciting? I think... Yes, it's definitely is very exciting. I, I think statistically, it's it's more exciting than ever. You know, it, it'll be fun if we win. That's sort of one out of five. Yeah. But this is like five out of thousands or something. I mean, there is so much material out there. There's so many talented people writing out there now that, that to even just be one of the five that gets picked to, to be nominated, is a, it's a huge deal. And we're very honored. So I had a chance earlier in one of our previous podcast conversations to talk with the sound team about Little Fires Everywhere. And... The thing I took away was it's very patient, it's very well written, very well directed. Um, the story is an incredible adaptation from the book. And for me, when the music sets in, there's like four momentum. I mean, it kind of leans into these characters, these mindsets, taking the perspective of the women and the children. And I really latched on to your choice of the percussion of the drums and the tempos that you were introducing. How did you kind of arrive at that feel? Because to me, it's not a sound that I, I hear often used that people are leaning into like a traditional drum sound, I guess. That actually comes from sitting in a room with Isabella Summers for the whole process. I mean, she's in, obviously my collaborator on this show. And she comes from the pop world. She comes from the Florence and the Machine. And she, her big thing in, in writing and production is drums. She's just, she starts there. She loves it. She's a superb programmer. She's you know, one of the best in that world. So, and we had discussions right from the front. You know, I said, uh, we don't have a lot of money on this. You know, it's television. We have a limited budget. I think we should spend it on strings and and maybe harp because we both lo love the idea of including harp in this. Yeah. And she's, and drums. She would always say, and drums. I say, Isa, you can, you can do such great programming of drums, you know. And then she would say, no, we need real drums, real drums. And literally right up until we were about to record, we were, at, you know, just at loggerheads over this. Then I redid the budget and said, all right, if we if we take a couple string players away, let's put a drummer in there. And then I think what put it over the top was we did the cover of In the Air Tonight. Yes. Which of course is all about the drums. So it all of a sudden occurred to me, it says no one in their right mind is going to program a, a, a cover of In the Air Tonight. In fact, we need a great drummer. And we were so happy that Vinnie Caliuta was available who is obviously one of the top five drummers probably in the world. And so that just, that set it up. And then we just said, all right, we have Vinny. Let's let that become a major voice of the whole show.
some of the, the wonderful um, aspects of this, because it does take place in the 90s, is these covers of songs from that time period. So did you work at all on any of those covers then? Any of the other ones? Yeah, we did, um, I think, all of the rest of them okay. uh, after episode one. We actually wanted to redo Sex and Candy ourselves, but we just sort of ran out of time. Okay. <laughs> but we did In the Air of the Night all the way up. Uh, we did all the other covers all the way up until we did the original song with Ingrid Michaelson at the end. Yeah, that's the one that she does uh, build up is beautiful. It's just like there's a lot of power uh, behind these vocals, behind the percussion, and behind your, your string arrangements. So how was it to work? with her, how did you guys collaborate then when it came to doing what you guys both did so well? Ingrid delivered a rough demo, which obviously went into the approval process. Mm -hmm. And then when all the producers had signed off on it, um, we just, I think the music editor um, spent some time with Liz, the showrunner, cutting it to picture because they wanted to, to intersperse with things at the end. And then handed over, over this, this form to us and we arranged it mm -hmm. in that form. Then, of course, the showrunner said, you know what, I think it's too much to have the lyrics and the poem at the same time. Let's pull the lyrics out and make them an addendum to the whole show so that it plays at the lyrics just come in at the very end. Um, but that left us with this long sort of two minute, three minute introduction based on the song that scores. So it, it actually becomes this long suite, you know, <laughs> with, with a two or three minute introduction that then leads you to the lyrics. It turned out really beautifully. Go. And how do you find, you know, when you have, there's so many creative collaborators on, a, on even, there's eight episodes, and I look at, like, the number of producers that there are on a series like this. What is it like managing notes and working with so many other people who are all coming to you and giving you feedback? Well, I think that's the biggest challenge of any of this stuff. Um, hopefully you, you have um, somebody who, who collates those notes and distills them down to a single point of view. You're not always that lucky. Um, we, we struggled with that, to be honest, have struggled with that a bit on this show. I think we had some first time producers who weren't aware that if we get three different opinions in the notes, it doesn't yield to a solution. <laughs> yeah. Um, but eventually we had great guidance in a wonderful music supervisor, Mary Ramos and Don Soler who's the head of ABC music stepped in and really helped that communication with the producers a lot. They had the ability to sit them down and say, look, you have to make up your mind. You have to tell these guys what you want. And that got straightened out, and, and then, then it uh, flowed pretty smoothly. What, what do you find is a little different like when I uh, compare maybe this, an eight-episode series, versus something like Once Upon a Time when there's we're looking at over 140 episodes. <laughs> what, is, what is different in terms of like getting up to speed and, like you said, budget and time constraints? What do you prefer in terms of like a well-oiled machine where once upon a time is very maybe turnkey and they understand how to collaborate with you? What, what maybe is different? What do you prefer? What, what's a little more challenging? Well, I think the, the good news about an eight-episode run is that that first episode won't be airing um, before you see episode eight. Okay. Right. You'll see 
you'll see all eight episodes before the first episode airs. So that if episode eight all of a sudden reveals that, you know, this particular theme is great if we do this, this, and this, we can go back to episode one and reflect that. In other words, it's almost like it becomes a long movie. If you score the end of a movie and you learn something about that score, you can then have that reflect in the rest of the score in the earlier parts of the film. By the time you reach episode 22, you you have 14 episodes of aired yeah. <laughs> or perhaps 18 episodes of aired. There's no going back, right? <laughs> so on, on regular network episodic television, you have to make those decisions right away. They have to be good. They have to be strong and they have to be strong enough that they still hold their own so that by episode 22, that opening theme is still, you know, the Prince Charming and uh, <clears throat> Snow White theme is still resonating. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you mentioned Once Upon a Time. I mean, I think that was one of the successful things about that score that if I mm-hmm. do pat myself on the back about, um, I did do a, a good job of, of picking themes early that lasted seven years. I mean, to be honest with you, they, they were there, the same themes you know, we're, we're still working seven years later. Yeah. Do you ever have that thought of, you know, it could turn into a, a very long collaboration when it comes to these TV shows? Because, you know, when I look at your track record over the years of the shows that you have gotten involved with, some of them are, you know, maybe like a crash was 26 episodes, you know, like you never really know that the length of how long these relationships will go on. Is that a consideration of, well, it's just going to eat up all my time. I, I can't necessarily devote that to other projects I might want to pursue. Like what's, what's your mindset when you take on a project? I, I struggled with that when I first got into television. In fact, if you, if you have my resume there, <laughs> you'll see that I did television quite a while ago. Um, and then I stopped doing it. Um, and I, I stopped doing it because of that very thing you, you mentioned there, that I didn't quite figure out how to adjust my time, that if I held on to these shows and did them, took responsibility for the whole show week in and week out, that I couldn't do what I wanted to do. But about eight or nine years ago, when Don Soler approached me about doing Once Upon a Time, I said, look, I'm going to approach this differently. I'm, re- I'm going to put a team together. Um, I'm going to do all the heavy lifting until I don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> and then... When I don't have to, I will budget my time so that I do what only I can do and everything else I can have other people do. And that way I can work on other projects simultaneously. And that it's, it's the way of the world now with the, with the way that technology is and the way that the business is. Um, and it works quite well. And it's just a learning experience and a decision you make to, to operate like that. That's great. So when you were working on this, the main title for Little Fires Everywhere, to me, it was interesting because it's not very often that you have an opening of a show. It's about a minute long, but like there's a story element here. There are so many clues that visually they're revealing in in the show, just right in in the first minute of the show. And as I started to watch more episodes, I started to pick up on those subtle kind of hints out, you know, what what it all meant. When did you uh, arrive at the main title and then how did that influence everything else? We started working on the main title pretty much concurrently with episode one. Okay. And it was one of those things where we said, well, can we see any idea of what you have? And then they sent us something and then they said, well, and now we need it in 48 hours.
it was probably the biggest hurdle we we overcame in terms of our relationship with the producers in the sense that um, we turned something in after 48 hours, but then we wanted the opportunity to really refine it mm -hmm. and take the time that the, the, the picture folks had had to work on their end of things. And we went back and forth a lot with the things that we changed because one of those early versions that we sent them, they fell in love with. And we kept trying to improve it, and to them it wasn't improvements, it was only changes. <laughs> so eventually we reached a compromise, which I think gave everyone the best of everything that they wanted. You mentioned this, it's a collaborative art form, and that I think that was one of the, the because not only now do you have your regular picture team, and you have your your producers, and, and the regular people you're working with, now you have a title company involved as well. So you have Hulu, you have ABC, you have Disney, you have the picture people, you have the the director, you have the producers, and now you have a title company. <laughs> That's a lot of people that that are weighing in. So it's it it can get to be a bit of a scramble. So when you do write uh, maybe your demo or kind of your sketchings of a main title, I mean something that that I really enjoyed was I think it sounds like a kind of like a like this solo violin. It's interesting because it kind of paints that like elegance of. The family or just like it has a certain feel obviously that it invokes because of the tonality of it but at what point do you start being like deductive like what do you what in your mind makes this successful like when you do like you say you have a short amount of time and you have all these tools you have all the paintbrushes in the world how do you prefer to work when it comes to something even like coming up with a one minute main title what, what, what makes most sense you know when you're trying to kind of work on something under a crunch I think the main thing for us was just to get a, a a song form that felt right. I mean, I, I like a, the the great thing about having a main title is that you can actually write a piece of music. I mean, most once upon a time the main title was da. That was it <laughs> for seven years. That's all you heard out of the main title, like seven seconds of three notes. So to to actually have a minute and ten seconds to write a, a melody and with chords and <laughs> that starts and stops. Uh, was quite a luxury. Uh, and that's the one thing that the streaming services, of course, have revived because they're not looking at, at commercial time that they want to save, that they're willing to have these beautiful um, introductory main titles now. So it's that's the one real pleasure in working in it, for those companies, you know. So we wanted us. We just we wrote a song, and we had a bridge, and and Isa did some drums, and and we talked about the melody, and you know she would play three notes, and I would play it and say, oh, those, your notes are good. But the, you know, it was it was a real collaboration. We we collaborated like all the time. We were always in the same room together, because that's what we really wanted to do. We wanted to do something that was that neither one of us would do on our own. Mm. That we, we would always a unique product of something that the two of us were creating together and we came up with this this song which was really cool and as you say it has it had it had to have an elegance because you have this, this reese witherspoon perfect world you know that everything's exactly in its place then you have a daughter who plays classical violin so that's part of the equation but then you have this rough and tough you know soulful angry shit as well so <laughs> I think we found out the right vocabulary, and then of course the final thing was was drums. Yeah, you know, you just put put the drums on it in the way that we were now realizing what drums was doing for our, the show in general. And so we just we'd sketched out a drum part, but as 
as always with Vinny, it's Vinny. It's just a sketch. Mm-hmm. Be, be Vinny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do your thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of your cues, um, which is towards the end, probably I think it's probably the last episode, which is called setting fires. To me, is the culmination of everything coming together. As a viewer, you don't know which side anymore you're on. The show opens up. The first episode is with the house is is on fire. You don't have context of who the characters are. But then obviously, when the series wraps out, you have all this backstory and all this kind of explanation of how and why it came to this. So when it came to that cue, to me, it's this huge payoff and it it just builds and builds. And um, I love, once again, the, you know, the percussion that Isabella did, but then your piano parts and some of the other instrumentation in there, the payoff was so wonderful. So can you give a little more background on that, that track? Yeah, they had a pop song in there in the temp. You know, there's this process of putting temporary music in these things. Yeah. And sometimes it's sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's the, the worst thing that could possibly ever happen. And this was this was the case of this was pretty bad. It didn't help us at all because it's a it's a song with completely other approach. It's got thousands of electric guitars and, and this woman with screaming her head off with background vocals and all sorts of stuff. And as we're not going to do that. So how do we do this? So we, we, we just decided to sort of up our game. And, and that's where Issa is great because, you know, she is a rock and roll goddess after all. Yeah. And she and she she can say, no, look, let's just strip it way down. Get rid of those Isham chords. Let's just put <laughs> keep it to the four chords. So I say, okay, I trust you. <laughs> and just build it up. You know, we just layered lots of stuff and... You know, I do have a lot of background in, in layering and orchestrating with synthesizers and keyboards, as she, does she. So just between the two of us, we built that thing up. And then, of course, it was the Vinny factor at the end. You know, just get him to lay waste the whole thing. Where'd you guys end up recording all the drums then? How did that um, co- did that coincide with what you were doing, your recordings? Uh, we actually had to move around a bit because um, our schedule got so last minute. We did most of it at Capitol B. Oh, great. Which we love, um, the great Capitol building. Yeah. Um, a couple of days we couldn't get in there, so we were at East West, which is also a lovely... I'd never worked there before, and it was, it was fantastic. So did you guys already at that point... By the time you were ready to record the percussion, you guys already had sketchings of, of what you wanted to... I mean, it was pretty locked in at that point? Yeah, you have to. No, you have to have decent sketches because the producers have to sign off on it. And I certainly don't want to go in and, and have a session with Vinny and you know 20 of LA's finest string players and spend all that money and not, not have the music completely signed off on. So the demos have to be really good. They have to really communicate what you're going to do uh, before you do that. How was uh, the, your spotting sessions um, early on, you know, as the show was being developed? When did they bring you in? And then, yeah, how did they handle all that? Well, initially it was sort of being spotted by the uh, picture editor um, and the producers. And that's where we sort of ran into our, our troubles in the early days because the picture editor was temping a lot of this stuff and wasn't really allowing uh, a style of music that Isa and I were, were trying to develop. So at a certain point, we just said, look, you have to let us just present to you what we're going to do. And we took the pilot and sat down with Don and, and Mary, the four of us, and respotted the whole thing and worked out the 
placement of themes and the development of themes and literally invited the producers into a room, sat them down and said, turn off your phones, turn down the lights and played them the entire pilot with our music in it. Mm. And then they saw, okay, we get it. You know, we, we trust you guys know what you're doing. Um, it's not what we thought it would be at all, but it's good because we actually do like it. <laughs> Is that exciting for you to have to go in and you already know that the kind of the cards are stacked against you, that people are like, but they've already made all the decisions. You just, just do that. Like, you know, you don't have to do anything. This is fine. This is working. And obviously it's not the case. Yeah. I, I hate that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the temp temper, this temporary music process can be helpful and it can also be very detrimental because if, yeah. if the filmmakers fall in love with the temp and feel that this is the only way this can be scored, this is the only piece of music that's going to make my film perfect. Then, then you're, you're in trouble. Yeah. You're really in trouble. There's no reason to really hire a composer. You should just license that music. You know, mm. Most creative filmmakers will realize, look, this is just a stepping stone. This is a way to learn. This is a way to talk about it. You know, It's better to talk about something than nothing. So put something in there, and it gives us a groundwork for conversation and discussion. You have to be open to those fresh ideas that presumably your composers are bringing you. Yeah. How much of that has changed? Because, you know, I feel like there's maybe... a I'm making an assumption, but there has been a shift of using more needle drop music in, in projects than maybe there was in the past. Is that true? Or what, what's the, how's the shift been? Uh, I don't know. I think it's been something that's always been, you know, different, different filmmakers have different approaches. I mean, I think, yeah. I don't know how many films Quentin Tarantino has done, but I think he's only scored one. All <laughs> right, the rest yeah. are needle drop, you know? Um, yeah. Scorsese is famous for, for just needle dropping most of the time. Uh, Woody Allen. Um, on the other hand, you know, Star Wars. <laughs> right. How can you not imagine an original score? <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, it 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 really is a style of filmmaking, and the and the way that the director sees their film. Um, if there's no there's no price advantage to it. To to be honest with you, a, a score of needle drops can be more expensive than an original score, depending on what you're putting in. Yeah. Did you have to go back when you were doing these covers for Little Fires? Did you have to? Were you guys referencing, you know, some of the original masters, or, you know, what what was your point of reference? We listened to them obviously to to learn the song. Yeah. Um, but I tried to like in the case of um, Bitch, the one we did yeah. with Ruby. Ruby, yeah. I mean that is that could not be more different than any of the other original versions, and that was on purpose. We said, look. The, the lyrics are right, but the, the, all of the renditions of it are fight against the scene. So let's, I said, to, is it, let me write a sort of a basic, sort of simple track that these chords will work with that melody as if I were scoring this, all right? As if we were scoring this scene and then help me put the song into that. I'm a bitch, I'm a lover, I'm a child, I'm a mother, I'm a saint I do not feel ashamed And that's the way we approach that. Now in the air tonight, you know, we had a you didn't want to go too far. We wanted to find our own voice. So one of the things we did was we'd get the vocal early on as we could, even if they just sang to like a, a click track sometimes yeah. and and a and a piano playing the chords. So that then we could let that vocal inspire us as to how to what clothes to put on it, you know. It's a powerful track. Ruby's voice is incredible. The build up, it's like you're in church. It's like Yeah. 
We have a great Ruby version of a Smashing Pumpkins song, which didn't end up in the movie. But at, at some point, I'll have to talk to Don. Maybe we can resurrect that as a as a hidden bonus track in, in a couple of years. <laughs> I mean, there are generations of kids. I mean, we see it all the time now on, on the web that have never heard these songs before. And this is like their first time, you know, some, now hearing these songs from the past 20, 30 years. And it's like there's so much good material. It's, it's awesome that you guys were able to pull from at lo, a lot of that stuff. Once the project is wrapped, do you just have to walk away and kind of get distance from it before you can revisit it? Or do you revisit your projects after they've come out? I usually don't. Um, yeah. And I haven't watched this since. Um, I think I'll, we'll, we'll see what happens at the Emmys. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, when you do wrap a project, how much time, like in this case, how much time did you have between Little Fires and, you know, transitioning now into um, Bill and Ted Face the Music? I mean, you had some other work in between there, but like, when did you find out about Bill and Ted? And then like, what happens after you finish Little Fires Everywhere? I think I was just starting Bill and Ted as we were finishing Little Fires. Um, it wasn't too bad a crunch. Um, I certainly met with Dean. I met with Dean before he started shooting, so I knew it was um, that I was involved. In fact, I, I helped send some tracks to the stage that they could at least have certain tempos and certain key centers to work off of when they started to shoot the ending scene. Uh, so the tra the transition and you know, look, Bill and Ted is so different than anything else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like you're walking into another planet when you, when you sit down to work on Bill and Ted. So uh, that the, the difference in style was just kept, kept me very, sane and not not confused at all yeah how, how did you and dean connect initially how, how do you guys know each other you know he just called me out of the blue oh okay i think he just I, that's somebody i want to work with and i hope he is available and i said i, I love galaxy quest yeah. uh, i would love to work with you <laughs> so yeah uh, yes i mean i just watched that like maybe a month or so ago with my wife it was a film that actually came out in 99 but like it still holds up it's hilarious and it's yeah yeah, yeah that, that's that's the movie is really funny. So Dean is just one of the classiest, funniest, just most, he's wonderful to work with. I, we had a fantastic time. So when did he first reach out to you then? When was that? So it was last year, you know, before he started shooting. So I knew, I knew about it. I knew that it was on the books. Yeah. So it was good. At, at, at that point, is he handing you a script? What like, what is he showing you and telling you? Yeah, it's a script. Um, and that, that's about it. Okay. You know, he, he, uh, yeah, I don't think I actually saw anything until the first first cut. Yeah, so something that um, if people aren't familiar with your background, obviously you have a huge influence of jazz music, but you also have a huge influence of electronic music. It's uh, kind of yeah an old. I don't. It's I don't. Know, well, how, how far back does that go? When did you first get interested in synthesis and electronic music? It came pretty quickly. I started off playing piano and then picked up the trumpet as a kid and. Became a professional trumpet player <laughs> when I was still a teenager, and then to uh, actually uh, my first, I, I couldn't 
make a full living as a trumpet player. So I had a gig in a, in a, a music store and the, you know, stocking trumpets and sweeping floors and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the owner of the store came in and said, I have this thing. I'm going to put it in the window. They told me I have to sell this. And it was an ARP Odyssey. Oh, wow. And by that time, I sort of knew that this thing of electronic music was starting to happen. And I'd heard about Morton Sabotnik and I'd heard about the Buchla people at Mills College. And I knew that Moog was doing things in the East Coast. And obviously, the ARP Odyssey was in a response to the Moog. It was the ARP company was sort of the next generation after Moog. And so I was, I was tremendously excited. So I said, well, I think I know how to work this. So I showed him. And then I just said, you know, how could I buy this? I said, I don't have any money. So he took $100 out of my paycheck every month. And that's how I bought my first synthesizer. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, one of the things that you had mentioned, I love your your chat and your recent performance for the Con uh, Film Festival, that the kind of remote festival that they did. It was really good. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was the influence from Weather Report. Was that what kind of showed you the way in terms of how you can infuse the two? Or it Absolutely. That's a ex- very good description. Um, yeah. I think the second Weather Report album was an eye-opening experience for me. It showed that you could take sophisticated modern improvisation, almost free jazz. You could join it with world music and you could join it with electronics uh, and have a classical thread through there, the zawinal thing, <laughs> and then Wayne just blowing free. I mean, it was just, to this day, that record sort of defines for me a beautiful potential of molding different genres together so that it almost forms its own own universe, you know. There's, for people who don't, I mean, it's like the weather report to me, it's like it, it was not part of my childhood growing up. But obviously, you know, it was more probably around and happening when you're coming up. But I just find that the weather report has influenced so many people and, and so many in so many unexpected ways. Uh, they were so revolutionary just in what they were doing. Why did you continue, I guess, even with all your jazz background and, and the trumpet and piano? Why did you still hold on to it? seems like you, you never let go of that past. It, it just continued. Yeah, I still think it's the most, I still find it the most exciting. You know, right now I have a, a setup where I'm improvising my trumpet with the bukla. And I have the trumpet patched into the bukla. So my improvisations on the trumpet affect what happens in the bukla. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I have a EDM drum patterns coming out of it at the same time. So I'm attempting to take some of that idea of exploratory improvisations as a jazz player into the electronic EDM world. And that comes from the fact that I saw what Weather Report did many, many years ago, that they could take these influences and, and become and create a new a new sound, a new environment, you know, a new musical language. So um, some of the synths you mentioned before we start recording, the, the Moog Modular, the Prophet 5, the CS80 from Yamaha, those are some of the ones that you kind of, you didn't even have to pull them out of the closet. They were already out on, on your desk. Uh, so, <laughs> Very true. So um, in this case, when it came to For Bill and Ted, because like there is some ripping guitar lines, there's like some, I was about to say, there's some excellent uh, <laughs> instrumentation. Yeah. What is the sound palette of the world of Bill and Ted? Because it's like, it is like <laughs> nothing else out there. Well, in, in the back, I decided personally not to do any guitars on the score. Yeah. Although having said that, I did do a guitar pass at the at the very last thing I did do. So it's not blatant, but it, it it's, there is a little few guitars here and there. But the actual Bill and Ted guitars, I left to Jonathan, who, who was constructing that from the day one. 
so that all of the stuff that, that Bill and Ted is doing comes from a particular sessions that Jonathan did. Um, so mm -hmm. I decided, because I have this great collection of synthesizers, that I would build the, the modern, by modern I mean 1980s modern, <laughs> Bill and Ted sound with the synthesizers and drums. And so I pulled out a Moog, I pulled out a Prophet 5, I pulled out, um, I say, an emulation of a CS80. I unfortunately don't own a real CS80, but someday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. And built up this this sort of sense of a of a band with with a bunch of of keyboards, you know. And then, yeah. but the main sound of Bill and Ted, and this came out of very early discussions with Dean, is that we want the score to take Bill and Ted seriously. <laughs> Be poking fun at them through the music. We yes, when when they're it's exciting and we have we have drums and we have synthesizers, but it's it's as if Tangerine Dream were taking this very seriously and scoring this, right? It's 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 not we're not poking fun here. And when they're you know, chasing people and running around through hell and stuff, we're expressing their um, nervousness, their upset, their their daughters are gone. This is terrible, you know. So yeah. We want to take them emotionally very seriously. So, you know, it's not it's not a real drama drama, but the music is in sort of this fantastical science fictiony world of sort of a I'm not even sure what era it would come from. It's maybe a little earlier than the '80s, more of a almost a '50s or or '70s. There was a period in the '70s which sort of scored like this, you know, with big yeah. chords, big this lush sort of strange moving chords but still very lush and still very very relatable you know and it just this style sort of evolved and it just seems to fit that fantastic world of the future and, and bill and ted being thrown into it yeah the, the the first cue the one welcome to the future whoa it to me the first 50 seconds is like a traditional kind of arrangement build up this reveal and then it like drops you in as if you're like you know being dropped in the telephone booth and then it goes into this full you know, uh, electronic realm. It's a great way to kind of set, you know, set the tone and kind of give people a taste of like, oh yeah, like we're we're in the present day, but these guys are still living in the past <laughs> in a way. Yeah, that's good. I like that description. It's 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 very true. The the score has a slightly nostalgic feel to it all the way through, and yet it, it it's done with great respect to the character of, of Theodore and William because that's that's we're really there to take care of them and their journey. For you, you know, what is it like to then to go back? I mean, most people live in the box. They're composing in the box. I mean, yes, they might be working on some analog instrument, you know, I say analog instrumentation, but just, you know, stuff that's not software sense or instrumentation. What is it like then to kind of stop, turn your chair around and go back to physical sense and work with them and then, you know, taking an analog device and pulling it into a digital realm? And what, what do you enjoy still about that tactile aspect of working with uh, hardware synths? Uh, I think just the fact that they're hardware synths. I mean, you actually physically yeah. touch a knob. I mean, you physically patch a cable from from the oscillator to the to the modulator. I mean, it's you just it, it's something I grew up doing, and I just have always had a passion for it. It's interesting timing that that you know we were 
about halfway through scoring Bill and Ted when the pandemic um, hit. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, there's no new picture coming and, and I'd sort of caught up and, and I had scored everything. And so I was trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to get notes because Dean couldn't see anything and Dean couldn't come out to the house anymore. And, okay. and so I had a, I had a week there where at least a week where it was total chaos. They didn't know how they were going to finish the film. And I decided, you know, a certain number of my synthesizers show up at the console, a certain number of them I can record, but I decided to rewire in that week my entire studio so that every synthesizer I own appeared at the console. Every synthesizer I owned could be controlled by the computer. Every synthesizer I owned could be immediately recorded by the computer. So that by the time Bill and Ted and, and the world sort of got back on its feet and was figuring out how to do things remotely and do things at home, I was sort of ready for this new world of I, I can use all my stuff <laughs> I can <laughs> yeah. I have it all involved you know yeah there, there is a warm-up a physical warm-up period of when you plug it in and you have to you know patch it and figure out how you want that your signal flow to work and then once you have it there now you have to do something with it because there's so many options where do you start I, f I find that like sometimes it people too many choices is just kind of that's it's, it's just creatively it's cumbersome what what in your mind is what's the fine balance of having too much and just enough to allow you to do what you do? Because when I look at the the pictures on your website, it's a healthy amount. It's not like it doesn't seem like I've seen some studios. It seems like it's too much. But yeah, what's the balance? Well, I think in this case with Bill and Ted, it, there was a very clear sound in my mind of what I wanted to achieve. I wanted those sweeping arpeggios that 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 sound of just roaring through time, roaring through space. You know, yeah. And so that that immediately sort of defines I, I need to use this, I need to use this, and I need to use this to get that sound. And then the fun of it is just sort of tweaking those knobs and saying, Oh my god, I would have never thought of that. Let's do that. You know? <laughs> Something is revealed. You know, that's part of the fun of those instruments is that you can just Things will just come out of them that you can't predict, and you, and then your aesthetic has to take over, and you say that that's a good idea. Let's use that. So, did the release date ever shift, or did they hold their August twenty eighth date? Well, I believe that's now holding, but it's shifted about seven times in the last couple of months. I know that they were okay. trying to stay out of the way of Tenant. They were trying to stay out of the way of Mulan. Uh, they wanted their own day and their own weekend as they deserve. Um, yeah. I think um, by picking the 28th, I think Tennant and Mulan have moved and picked other dates. So yep. this seems to be pretty stable. They seem to be uh, holding on to this and the, the press seems to be holding. Does that, I mean, how long ago did you lock, did they lock picture and sound and everything else? Oh, we were done a couple of months ago. You know, but basically okay. the last, last two months I've just been getting the records ready. The records were all finished last week, so they're ready to go now. Yeah, it's exciting to see. To I've had a chance to listen through it. How do you pick and choose what material makes it into into the release? What I try to do is I try because I feel that most people that buy a soundtrack want to re-experience the movie in some way. So I try to actually let the score evolve, like the story does, so that if if you have a sense of if you're going to listen to it all in one run, you can sort of experience the, the story again. So basically it sort of starts at the beginning and just goes through to the end. I mean, I, I start when they go to the future, um, mm -hmm. when they're picked up by, by the gal that comes to get them. 
and I end uh, just before the last song, you know, when they're delivered to the stage to perform the song. So, uh, and I think it's pretty close to being straight through, just the, in the order that it was written. That's awesome. Where did you end up recording? There's a beautiful choir arrangements in there. Like, wh where did you track all this stuff? Well, again, we we had the the pandemic <laughs> problems, you know. Um, I I was very nervous about the about this as as was everybody because this everyone agreed this needed to be an orchestral score, and I'd written a lot of choir material, and um, so I, I was just keeping my my feelers out there to all corners of the world as to how this might happen. And nothing in America was opening up. And it looked like if we wanted to do this in America, we would have to literally go to, I don't know, 25 different string players and have them send in stuff, augment it. And, and I, I just said, oh, God, this is just, that's, I don't know how it can be done. I, I actually have friends that have done that. I have yet to have to do that. And then uh, I kept my eye on Europe and discovered joyfully that if I waited one more week that uh, the orchestra in Budapest in Hungary would actually would put 40 players in the room with masks, but they would do it. So we waited for them and um, they did a f really, really good job. I mean, and then we had to do the brass and then I did some brass here being a brass player. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And then we did we did go out to some specific wind soloists from their homes and did that. And then the choir, we were debating it. Um, we didn't have a very large budget. So I was thinking, well, maybe Budapest would put together a choir. And then it, it sort, of, sort of ran out of money having spent it on the orchestra. Yep. So I had, my, I, I had my assistants just buy every fantastic choir library that's ever put out there and do a do a the best of. So the choirs are all actually all just out of the computer. Oh, that's incredible. I, I would have never known. To me, it just, it seemed to fit in there so well. Well, thank you. We worked really, really hard to do that because it's, we, we you know, had spent the time to write all this stuff as if it were real, real strings and real choir, but it just, it, the time factor and the money factor and the pandemic factor just combined to that being the best solution for this you know. How often have you done that, the remote record, you know, when you're in L.A. and your or orchestrations are being performed on the other side of the world? I've done it uh, a fair number of times over the years. I've done it to London a number of times, and I've done it to Prague. Uh, this is the second time I've been done it to Hungary. Um, you usually do it for, for time, again, time constraints and money constraints, not for pandemic constraints. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, yeah, they did a, a fantastic job. It, it's far from optimum. I love being in the room. There's no greater thrill for a composer than to be in the room with an orchestra playing your music. But, um, you know, ultimately, I think we got a product that doesn't, that sounds as if it had all been done in a room in a great, and it sounds, I, I could not be happier with the sound of it. It sounds, you know, as, as good as I could imagine. So all that material comes back to you in LA, and do you do you work with a mixer and editor in your studio, or what's the next step after you've captured it? It gets all combined and sent over to my mixer. And to be honest with you, to take all these disparate elements, you really do have to, to get a good mixer and spends a little extra time. And the guy I use is tremendous. And he, he's, he comes, um, he has quite a bit of experience recording orchestra, but he also comes from a band, actually a punk band experience. So that, so that when you give him, you know, Bill and Ted 
flying through the phone booth, he knows what to do. You know? <laughs> he he can jack that shit up and <laughs> and get it really roaring. So so he's 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 a a great asset and a great part of the team when it comes to making this all come together. So what were a lot of your deliverables? Are those stems or are those five one seven one? What what do you end up delivering then to the mix stage? We deliver a series of five one stems. Okay. Yeah. Usually, probably in this case, probably orchestra. He may have split winds and strings. I don't know, but definitely percussion is different. Is separate. Choir is separate. Uh, so you can maybe get five stems, but all in five one. Mm-hmm. And, and do you ever have the inkling to go to the mix stage? Are you ever invited at that point? You know, when it is. I mean, obviously it's a little different with the pandemic, but what's your tendency? You know, after you've d- done your part. I usually don't go to the dub. I, I will go if they do a play a playback. I will I will always try to go because that's that's the best you're ever going to hear it. That's before it gets compressed and and weirded up by Directv or <laughs> yeah. Um, so that that's really your your best shot at hearing the movie in its absolute finest audio glory is yeah. the playback being stage. Yeah, going back to that transition from Little Fires to Bill and Ted, it feels it feels like you can take a deep breath. You know you're gonna be doing something totally separate. You're not gonna be doing the same type of you know character or or feel. We're here in August in of this year, and it seems to me that there's no explanation of how or when you know things will return to whatever normal is. But for you, what what is your hope in terms of um, you know looking ahead in terms of the future? Because music is it's so singular. It starts. It starts with one person in a room working by themselves, and it kind of ends that way too. But now it's like everyone's forced to be that way. <laughs> how how do you think the pandemic? I guess the question is, how do you think the pandemic has affected your own thought process of, of you know why you, maybe you enjoy your work or what what it is about it? Well, I've I've always made this sort of sardonic comment that that a composer leads almost a pandemic life naturally. You know, yeah. at least. At least I find that I do. I get up in the morning, and if I'm working, if I have a couple of projects on the books, I get up in the morning, I go into my room, and I come out, you know, eight hours later, having spent the whole day by myself. Yeah. So it doesn't. That experience hasn't changed much. Um, it does bring into light that a lot of the things that you might go to to have to do as a group can be done remotely. Um, we mixed all of Bill and Ted remotely. We, there's there's technology now where I could listen to exactly what's coming off of my mixer's console. I can listen to in my room, so I'm hearing what he's hearing, and um, we mix the whole thing in our two rooms. Yeah. <laughs> but simultaneously working together as we always have. So and there's more technology being developed, you know, to let more than just two people do that. Maybe maybe let, you know, larger groups of people and to, to work out the synchronization of all of that. And it will have positive I mean obviously it'll help get through the pandemic, but you know, if you if you want to work with a a Malaysian you know, Cora group or something <laughs> and you don't have the budget to go to Malaysia, this opens up the fact that you could collaborate with people all over the world in a much more effective and technologically feasible way. You know, I think that's one of the plus sides to this is that, yeah, in the past we've, we've used this technology to help save money or, or in this case to help get through the pandemic. But it's also, once the technology really gets sorted out, it's just going to allow real global interaction, which I think 
that that's a very big plus in this day and age, especially if, you know, if I can develop a whole community in Africa or a whole community in, in Paris of, of musicians that I like interacting with, that's a tremendous thing. You know, that's a really remarkable thing. Last question was, you know, Bill and Ted, the whole story kind of hangs his hat on this idea that there's one song that's going to unite the world and save us. Yeah. <laughs> Were you involved with that, um, coming up with what that, that track was? Uh, I wasn't. No, I, I, this, the song, there were two or three songs written initially, and then the music editor, Jeff Carson, sort of cobbled them together for the first pass and sent it over to me. Uh, I made some changes and some transpositions and rewrote a certain section and sent it back. And Dean said, well, that's great. That'll get us through the first pass. And then Jonathan Leahy came back with his the guys that had written those things and said, all right, well now let the producers finish that. And ultimately that's what happened. But I got to say, Jeff Carson was the one that took some of the raw material and made it work as film music. I had a small part to play in that. Um, and then the producers went back and turned it into a, a pop track, but with the form that Jeff initially lined out, because that's that's the big difference here. You have to understand the storytelling. You have to understand, you know, can't go to the bridge there. You have to go to the bridge here, you know, <laughs> or else it just doesn't make any sense to the story. And once we had sort of drawn out that roadmap, then the producers came in and finished off the song. It's fun. It's it's the it, it's such a fun movie, and I'm excited for people to check it out. The nostalgia of it, it's just like, and their enthusiasm for music, it's just, it's, oh. it's it, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And congratulations on your Emmy nomination for Little Fires Everywhere. Fingers crossed. Um, Thank you. Is it, is it a virtual ceremony? How, how are they doing that? It is. It is. We have to pre-record acceptance speeches as if we all had won. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like your worst nightmare. <laughs> I know. I've been thinking about it, how to be humorous and... and uh, <laughs> oh, my God. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> well, congratulations for anyone, obviously, who wants to follow you. Um, your website, isham.com, is a wonderful place to go. Where else can people keep track of you, what, what you're up to? Uh, I'm on Instagram, Mark Isham, certified. Yep. Uh, I, I do live little improvisations a couple times a week. People can check check that out. That's always a lot of fun. That's awesome. Well, Mark, thank you so much. It was so fun to catch up. And uh, once again, congratulations on both these projects. I think people are going to hopefully, if they can see in theaters, which I hope would be the case, they can hopefully obviously check out the soundtrack and everything else you've worked on. So thank you again. My pleasure, Michael. Always fun to talk to you.